Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Tim Sutton, welcome to the Center of the Universe. I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, uh, you and I connected through uh, Rob Dull. Yes. How, how do you and Rob know each other? I've known Rob a long time. He uh, was one of the officers up at King's Dominion Amusement Park while I was working security during the summers. Uh, I was home from college and had the opportunity to meet Rob and work with him. And then I believe he went with one agency, law enforcement agency, after his tenure at King's Dominion. I went with uh, another agency and then subsequently we ended up in the same place once both of us left our jobs and went to a common agency and worked together for a while. All right, right on. Uh, and Rob was excited to have you join us because you're a stand-up guy and you also, outside of your core job as a police officer, you, you do quite a bit for uh, the special needs community. Yes, that uh, my law enforcement career led that to happen. Uh, it was very interesting how that started. A lot of people are wondering why I got into dealing with special needs, dealing with Alzheimer's, dementia, other forms of dementia, as well as autism and other disabilities. And it's all just due to... Uh, the sheriff's office I work for and an assignment I was given kind of led me in that direction. Wow. All right, let's back up. You, yes. were, you were from Hanover County originally. That's correct. Born in Hanover County? Born in Hanover. Now, back then, how, how could you be born in Hanover County? Because you and I are about the well, same age. I was born in Richmond, but yeah, I got grew you. up in Mechanicsville. So, But you consider yourself a Hanover oh, definitely. person. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I wasn't born technically in Hanover because there wasn't a hospital right. back when right. you and I were babies. So we had to go to Richmond to be born, and then we came home as soon as we could. Right. Right. All right but you grew up on the eastern half Eastern half of the county, yes, sir. Uh, more particularly, where where did you grow up? Uh, down off of Mechanicsville Turnpike, 360, okay. in the area of what is now Mechanicsville High School. It okay. used to be Lee Davis High School. All right, so you grew up right there in the middle, middle of uh, the action. There. I used to walk to school. Yeah, well, I, you can't imagine that now, right? Yeah, no, not now. Going on there. You'd get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, you would. Maybe two of them before yes. you got to school. Oh, yes. So what was it like growing up in Mechanicsville? It was just, uh, I mean, it was out in the country especially compared to what it is today but uh there just wasn't a lot going on i was in a neighborhood um you know and it's just your friends were your neighbors and you played in the street uh, but there really wasn't a whole lot if you wanted to go do something you would have to go into richmond uh, i remember a 7-eleven and i believe there was like an arby's restaurant it was and there was a little gas station on the corner of uh, 360 and Lee Davis Road. But there, other than that, there really wasn't much. And you, I can't, I mean, you can't imagine that now. No, everything, uh, when I walked to school, I walked across a huge field um, mm. that farmers were farming. And now it's, uh, it was a library at one point on that property and, and an apartment complex now. Okay. Now, uh, our audience can't see you, but you're a big dude. Kind of. Did, did, did you play sports? I did not. I was, um, during high school and even during college, I was probably about 100 pounds lighter. Okay. So I was, you know, I would always joke with people. I would say I was one of those geeks. I was a yearbook editor, uh, did a lot of writing, and school was my priority. I had an older brother who played sports, so I was always known as Tommy's little brother. Mm. So 100 pounds lighter. You're tall, dude. Yeah, 6'4". You, you must have been a skinny cat. I was very skinny. Yeah. Yeah, and those those summers working at King's Dominion, walking around security, uh, it kept your weight off. <laughs> Especially during the summer. Right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, so uh, when did you know you wanted to be a police officer? You know, I, I'd worked up security at King's Dominion. My brother worked up there before, and I was kind of looking for a job when I came home for uh, summer uh, from James Madison. And he had recommended I go ahead and apply up there. So I went and, and started to do the job security officer the first year. 
And then if they want to, they can actually promote you to a special police officer at the time, which you had uh, law enforcement powers Hmm. on King's Dominion property. You did not carry a firearm, but you had a nightstick and arrest powers. And I was just doing that during the summer. And you get a very good feel as to how to interact and deal with people. Um, Because some of those days, the crowds in that park are D.C., Baltimore, crowds coming down and you're the security so you have to learn how to talk to people how to communicate um you know your best weapon you have is your brain right and the gift of gab helps a lot but uh, i have done that job and i when i graduated from college i was trying to decide whether or not to go work on a master's degree i got ended up uh switching from communications majors to a major to a business major graduated with a business management degree interested in personnel law the hiring and firing and the, uh, what to get around what you couldn't get around and all the ins and outs and i started to work on an mba and i was actually substitute teaching at my old high school uh, just to uh, make some money in the fall because the park had closed and a couple friends of mine that i worked up at king's dominion with said they had applied with the chesterfield county police department and i ought to go ahead and put an application in and at that first semester of my master's degree I just decided I'd had enough of school and I went ahead and applied and went through the process and background investigation and everything. And then six months later, I was standing at a flagpole with a shaved head with a training officer in my face yelling and screaming at me. And I was on the ground doing push-ups because the girl that was in my academy, she had messed up something, but we were all being held accountable for each other. So I was doing push-ups because of her. So you doing security at King's Dominion didn't mean you wanted to be a police officer at the time. No, I, I just I needed a job during yeah. the summer. And it was pretty it was a pretty neat job. You see things that typically, you know, it's kinda of like law enforcement in general. You see things that the general public doesn't see. So you said you have arrest authority, and I didn't know that the security at King's Dominion had arrest authority. How does Hanover County uh, Sheriff's Office feel about that? What's the arrangement between the two? They swear in a certain amount of officers, uh, but their arrest powers are just on the park, uh, park's property, and they can make the arrest, uh, at least they could at that time. They still have some sworn officers that work up there. And, uh, you know, we're we're up there a lot of times, uh, our agency they hire us off duty to come up there sometimes and work. So we kind of work, work jointly with them and they're kind of learning the process. If they do make an arrest, we kind of walk them through and show them exactly what to do. And we'll sometimes handle the uh, transports to the jail, but uh, it's a good training ground. If, if that's something yeah. you think might be, you might be interested in. So uh, Chesterfield, uh, you're by the flagpole getting yelled at, you got a shaved head, you're doing push-ups. What do you have fond memories of that experience? I have fond memories as far as the experiences. Um, you know, military environment is not something I was interested in going into. But to do that job, I knew I had to do it. They've got to tear you down and build you back up into what they want. It was a good experience. And plus, working on the road, I worked down on uh, Jeff Davis Highway midnight shift. And it's a lot of uh, a lot of seedy areas down there. And it was a great experience. Uh, and you again, I think the job at King's Dominion helped uh, adapt me to be able to interact with people. Uh, whether I mean, and, and the thing about the job is you, law enforcement, you come into contact with the richest of the rich, you come in contact with the poorest of the poor. You, co- you come in contact with everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, and the things you see are not what the typical public sees. Um, but it was a very good training ground for me uh, and just seeing another, 
you know, I, interesting thing about that when I was not familiar with Chesterfield County before I went over there. And I remember in the academy, they kept talking about the pike uh, when you get down on the pike. And I'm thinking Midlothian Turnpike. Sure. Uh, okay. That I had no idea Route 1, Jeff Davis Highway down there. I had no idea that existed, but that's where I ended up working. And it was, it's a whole different world, but yeah. I enjoyed it. And the experience is something I will never, you know, never have a problem with it, it it taught me so much in how to interact with people they're a good organization over there oh they chief cats now I, I hear people praising chief cats and uh i, I think that those guys and girls are doing an amazing job and he's he's backing them up yeah which is what a sheriff should do right? yeah yeah all right so but you didn't stay there for forever no i stayed there for four years and then i kind of wanted to come back home to hanover and uh that's when i put the application in next thing you know i was hired and I had no idea the West End of Hanover was as big as it was, and, <laughs> it's uh, <huge. laughs> and I was riding out there getting lost because at the time all the streets were route numbers, and none of them had names. And I can tell you, there was one night where I was riding and riding in my car, and all of a sudden I started to lose radio reception, and I realized I was up in Caroline County riding around, didn't understand why the street signs were blue but now I, I quickly figured that out but uh it, it was it was neat to come out here and i'll tell you something about hanover is you're appreciated more by those citizens yeah than a lot of other places yeah I, that's part of the reason i live here right yeah right uh so you talked about driving uh to the western half the western half north south is b- bigger it, there's more distance to cover there yes it gets wider as you go to the west but driving from the eastern edge of hanover to the western edge of hanover how long does that take because i imagine you've it could take it could take roads. you it could take you probably 35 40 minutes seems at crazy least and you're still the from, same county right just to get out there and when you're working as one supervisor you know uh handling the shift out there and you're down in the east end of the county and all of a sudden something happens in the west end of the county it's a it's a long haul yeah yeah yeah, you're not going to get there quickly. No, and you, you got to be patient, and you get there as quickly as you can. But you know, you don't if you don't have to turn those blue lights on and turn the siren on because it, it's easier. Because sometimes people freak out when they see those lights, and then they start driving slower. Yeah, and they start driving slower. They run off the road, kicking up gravel. So you many times you get there as quickly as you can um, without breaking the you know the speed limit or, or whatever. But you know, luckily Hanover is pretty. You know, compared to a lot of places here in the Richmond area, it's, it's a great place to live, and it's relatively calmer and a lot less uh, major incidents happening. All right, so let's talk about you. You took training. You were assigned. Uh, what was the assignment exactly for the special needs opportunity? Well, I, you know, I did four years at Chesterfield. I came out, and I worked two years midnight shift uh, here, and then I went to a unit, a street crimes unit, which is plain close uh, surveillance-type unit for four years. In 1999, I got promoted to the rank of sergeant. And in 2002, I was uh, approached by the sheriff at the time and told I was going to run a program. And I asked him what it was. He said, well, I, I don't know. It just helps you find missing people. Missing people. And, and why did he assign you? Was it something about you or is it just you were the next guy up kind of thing? Well, I think most supervisors are assigned a special team or a special uh, group. Uh, we've got the uh, you know team that's trained on riot dealing with riot civil disturbances and they've got a sergeant in charge of them so i guess my number came up and it was time for me to be assigned something and i think he had been to a conference and saw this uh, program called project lifesaver which it deals with people who have cognitive issues who wander off and get away from their caregivers or their parents and uh, 
it's a, it was a three-day training at the time. It was me and 15 of the other uh, co-workers went through this training on how to go out and place a watch size transmitter on the individual, which we call clients. And should they wander off, the caregiver parent calls 911 because it is an emergency. And my team, we go out and the transmitters work off of radio frequencies. It's not GPS or anything, but we can actually come out to the point last scene where, where they knew they were, start riding the area until we pick a signal up. And we hopefully walk right to them and right. bring them back home safe. And as I got to meet these families, I started to realize that while the elopement and the wandering, uh, like with Alzheimer's, was a problem, uh, these families were dealing with a lot more than that. And people didn't, especially officers, we didn't understand. We would respond to deal with the situation and we would do the best we could. We would revert back to our training. Um, but officers weren't being trained to understand the disabilities, autism and things. So we would do the best we could. And I started to realize we needed to learn these things. Officers need to learn these things because our goal is to go out there and do our job effectively. We can go out there two, three, four times a night to deal with the situation. But if we know how to deal with the situation, we can go out there and maybe deal with it once and maybe don't have to come back till next week when something goes on. So what really, I guess, shot me in the direction of doing what I do, training uh, public safety, and I'll train anybody who will listen, but the first little boy I met with autism, he was six years old. He had a twin brother uh, with autism, but he was in a wheelchair. And the mother called and said, you know, she's worried that Matthew was going to wander off and she wanted him in the program. So as soon as I showed up at the residence, I walk into the house and the first thing he did was walk over and put his hand on my weapon. Mm. And we're telling him, no, Matthew, you know, don't do that. Don't do it. And I'm reinforcing it. Mom, dad are reinforcing it. So then he would come over and he would lean up against it because he wanted to be in contact with it. And we're telling him no. Well, I was sitting at the kitchen table talking to mom and dad. And I felt something under my chair. And I looked down. And Matthew was laying on the floor and had his finger up the barrel of my weapon. Oh, man. And I left there and I thought, you know, with autism, unless there's an, unless there's an underlying issue... They look no different than anybody else. And it's pretty much an invisible disability. And I bumped it ahead 20, 25 years and imagined myself standing in a uh, Walmart or standing somewhere and an adult Matthew walks through the door and sees me and runs over and automatically puts his hand on my weapon. My thought is going to be he's trying to take my weapon. He's You're assault- trained to think that way. Yeah, and he's assaulting law enforcement. Um so I grab hold of him and, and it builds on itself because I tell people with autism, it's very sensory driven. And there are people who, uh, with their skin sensitivity, if you barely touch them, it feels like razor blades are cutting through their skin. Mm. There are others who you could grab their arm and as tight as you want, and they wouldn't even know you're holding them. Mm. But I thought, okay, if I grabbed his arm while he's trying to get my weapon and it felt like razor blades are cutting through his skin, anybody would react. So he's trying to fight to get away from that pain. I'm interpreting that as he's still assaulting, resisting arrest. And next thing you know, you end up in a knockdown drag out where with autism, if you've ever dealt with any of them, they're extremely strong and they have these huge adrenaline rushes. And the part of their brain that controls their fight or flight is the amygdala. It's everybody has it, but many times with autism, it's enlarged. And there have been documented cases where it's four times larger. Mm. So when they get startled, scared, spooked, they have a catastrophic reaction. So I'm sitting there wrestling, trying to get them under control. Um, 
finally when I get handcuffs on him, and, and I'm still of, of the impression I'm being assaulted and he's resisting arrest, I get him handcuffed and he's laying face down on the ground and I'm trying to catch my breath. It would have been nice if somebody had told me a lot of times with autism and other disabilities, uh, they're hypotonic, where their muscles are not fully developed, specifically in the chest. So as I'm sitting there trying to catch my breath and he's laying there on his stomach, what's he not doing? Not breathing. Not breathing. Uh, it's positional asphyxiation. So um, that would be good information to have. Uh, you know, I've never, in my job, I have never had to pull the trigger. But I think if I thought my life or somebody else's life was in danger and I had to pull the trigger, I think I'd be okay with that. However, that's one of those things you never know until you actually have to do it. Right. But if I took somebody's life later to find out that I misinterpreted a behavior and they weren't trying to do anything to me, that's something I've got to live with for the rest of my life. And I don't want any officer to have to go through that. Unfortunately, it's happening across the globe where officers are misinterpreting some behavior. Um, and, and if I can get out there, you know, my consultant business is a better understanding. I'm trying to give people a better understanding of these disabilities. Um, and I think anybody, anybody in the general public or comes in contact with the general public should understand it. I've had the opportunity to train J. Sergeant Reynolds Police Security and actually got invited back to train some of the faculty because they realize they've got students with autism. Sure. Um, so, and I've trained medical professionals and I don't teach the medical aspect of it. I teach understanding the behaviors, how to have that encounter, how to have that interaction without making the problem worse. Uh, and, and I could teach everybody in the world, but we're not going to get rid of all of these situations happening. But if, we, if I can do something to help minimize the occurrences, that's all I want to do because these, a lot of these parents are scared to death. What's going to happen when my child is an adult and they're out in public and I'm not there with them and they get called in as being suspicious? or something like that, you know, is that officer going to understand autism? Because there are studies out there that show that people with autism are actually seven times more likely to have a law enforcement encounter than mm -hmm. a neurotypical individual. So we need to know. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have a thousand questions. Is autism more prevalent now than it was, say, 50 or 100 years ago? Or do we not really know? It's more prevalent. Uh, the numbers have gone up right now. The CDC says it's one in every 54 births. Mm. And it's four times more prevalent for males. You know, I know that in the 90s, I think the numbers were like one in 2,500, somewhere in that that's, area. That's insane. Yeah. And, and I think it's being diagnosed better. It may be getting overdiagnosed, but the fact is more of it's out there. You know, as the population grows, more of it's out there. So it's, it's an area that's not going to go away. Its population is not going anywhere. So if we're going to be out there interacting, whether you're law enforcement, uh, fire, EMS, um, we need a better understanding of what's going on so we can take care of the public. When I was sworn as an officer, I was not sworn to protect this population or that population. I was sworn to protect all populations. And this is one, you know, there are also studies through uh, Niagara University, Dave Whalen, that 49% of all law enforcement encounters involve somebody with a disability. That's an incredible And stat. that's including mental health sure. as well, but 49%. Half. Yeah. So why not understand what you're dealing with? Yeah. So out of, and I'm asking you to make an educated guess, and you're going to be plus or minus whatever you're going to be. How many law enforcement agencies, local, state, do you think have a full appreciation for the challenges for these special needs folks? In Virginia, I think it's slim. Um, it's not mandated in the state of Virginia for law enforcement. I know some families that I've worked with are trying to get legislation passed 
for the whole criminal justice system, the law enforcement, corrections, magistrates, judges, attorneys. Uh, they're pushing, 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 trying to, I know the National ARC is working on that too. Um, the thing is, people with autism, sometimes they do need to be arrested. But sometimes that's not, not necessarily the best course of action because wherever they're placed, uh, same with Alzheimer's, it, it, they could become a victim in that facility. So, you know, I tell, I, when I teach, you know, everybody talks about domestic assaults. There are families that you go to who have kids on the spectrum or adults on the spectrum, the 18, 19 year old son or daughter who are non speaking. Um, but they communicate by pinching or hitting or biting. And you'll find a lot of these families with bruises and all over mom and all over mom and dad. And law enforcement, we're taught if you get there and you see signs of an assault and you've got a predominant aggressor, the code section says you shall make an arrest. Right. Um, but deep down in another area of the state code here in Virginia, and, I, and every state I've been to teach, uh, they have a similar uh, caveat. It, it actually reinforces the fact that you shall make an arrest unless there are extenuating circumstances that will call for another course of action. Now, with Alzheimer's, when you go and the wife has a black eye and you're sitting there talking to her, finding out what's going on, she said her husband hit her, but he's lost so much of the memory, he doesn't even realize him his wife. Well, was his intent to assault his spouse? You got to do, okay. so, you got to do something. Right. Um, but is necessarily the right course of action taking him to a lockdown facility and he may be put in there with general population and the next day the corrections officer goes in and he's laying in a pool of blood and they ask him what happened. He has no idea. He has no idea because he doesn't remember. So, you know, we, we need to document everything and if we don't make an arrest, we need to put in that report why we did not make an arrest. But you also need to put in what you did, whether you got them to the hospital or, or what you did to take care of that situation. So, you know, these populations can easily be victimized and, and, and we need to understand what's going on. And that with Alzheimer's, we need to understand that that's not going anywhere. So we're responding on these calls. So why not understand what we're dealing, what we're dealing with? So I, I, both my grandmothers had Alzheimer's uh, a few years before they passed. And one of them uh, would wander. Right. So, and I don't know if that's typical or not for Alzheimer's, but I, I imagine it happens uh, to more than one family. When that happens, what's the, what's your best advice to a family to, to deal with an eloper or somebody who wanders like that? To get involved in some type of tracking program once we get them back. Um, a lot of places say we won't, you know, if they get involved with the tracking program, the agency or fire department or even there are even civic groups that run it for different counties um, say, oh, they have to have a history of wandering. I prefer if they've got the propensity to wander off. Yeah, who cares if they have a propensity? I want. I mean, yeah, I don't want them to have that history. I want their first time they wander off to have that transmitter on them so we can find them. Um, and, and what the reason they wander is Alzheimer's and many of your dementias. There's over a hundred different types of dementia. the The biggest thing is how I describe it to people because they always want to know what the difference is between Alzheimer's and dementia. And I say, look, okay, let's say you're calling in work, you're sick. Sick is that umbrella. Hmm. There are different ways of being sick. You can have a sinus infection, a cold, the flu, you know, earache, tonsillitis, whatever. There are all ways of being sick. So as far as dementia, dementia is that umbrella. Underneath of that, you've got Alzheimer's. You've got uh, my father's dealing with Parkinson's. He's got dementia related to that. You've got chronic alcoholics who have dementia. The biggest thing is Alzheimer's is responsible for the majority of your dementias. And it is a disease. 
It's not a symptom of Parkinson's. It's not a symptom of chemotherapy. Alzheimer's is where this beta amyloid plaque starts to fill up the brain and take over the brain. And it adheres to the synapses where all the information goes back and forth and it chokes it off and it dies. So those memories are gone. And typically, kind of like autism, if you've met one, you've met one. Every single one's different. Um, but a lot of times they're losing that short-term memory. And part of your short-term memory is being able to learn new things. So if, you know, my car is parked out front right now, if I had Alzheimer's, I'd be sitting here wondering how I got here, not even knowing how or what I came in or, you know, what we're doing. So that's, they, that's why you have a lot of caregivers getting in debates with their loved ones who have Alzheimer's because the, the client, as I'll call them, will complain because they're not feeding me. They didn't give me breakfast. Well, in fact, they had breakfast. They just don't remember having it. But as that short-term memory disappears, um, they may have only been living in this location for 10 years, but if they've lost the past 10 years of memories, in their mind, they live somewhere else. Mm. And one thing to listen for is whenever they start saying, I want to go home. Um, And we had a gentleman here in the county who we put in our program. as probably about two years ago. The wife could not get him to come inside. He was out in the front yard, and he had Alzheimer's. And the officers actually got there and started talking to him and said, well, you know, you want to go home? Yeah, I want to go home. Well, where do you live? And he said, I live in New York. Mm. He said, but I don't get my license until next year. He said, otherwise I would drive on home. He thought he was 15 years old. Wow. And I had a lady up in Doswell actually uh, was told, asked to come over there and talk to them and talk to the daughter and said, where is she at? In her mind. And I said, no, it's not politically correct, but I'm not politically, grammatically correct. And she said, you're the second person today that's asked me that. I said, who was the other? I said, Alzheimer's Association. She said, well, she thinks she's 16. And she can tell you everything about the basketball game she played last night, but she has no idea who we are uh, are living in the house with her. And it was Because they weren't alive when she was 16. Right. And it was her daughter, son-in-law, and grandchild. She knew they were the nice people that took care of her. But when I went in and sat down, I introduced myself. She introduced herself to me. We sit there and talk for two minutes, and then she introduced herself to me. I introduced mm-hmm. myself to her. Every two minutes, we would end up introducing ourselves to one another. And I would go out in the backyard with her and shoot baskets. I'm in uniform, and I'm out there, and she's, she's shooting the ball just like she's 16. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, And we even had a lady who lost everything, thought she was six years old. And she would sit there and play hide-and-seek with the caregiver, hiding behind curtains and things, thinking – she can't find me but in her mind she was six years old so it's scary um to think of what alzheimer's and these dementias do um and these caregivers there are a lot of people out there who say the caregivers suffer more than the person with the dementia because they're losing that person right um and, and they just need people to understand And that generation you know the older people it's always this is our problem we'll deal with it we'll handle it we you know and they, they're very secluded and I tell people, if you know somebody out there who's a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's, you know, that's not when they need the friends to disappear. It's not contagious. That's when they need more support. Say, hey, do you want to go run some errands, go do something for a couple hours? We'll come sit with them. And one of the, um, it was interesting because I was in San Diego speaking at a conference and I had some police chiefs come up and they said, well, we don't understand what Alzheimer's has to do with law enforcement. What, what do the two have to do with each other? And I said, well, look, I, I, at the time, I had a gentleman here in the county who had fought in World War II, and he was in the Navy. Well, once a month, we would get a call about this old guy walking down Cole Harbor Road in his Navy uniform. And we, we knew who it was. Well, 
in his mind, if you asked him where you were headed, he's, he'll tell you, I'm headed to Norfolk. I got to go overseas. Mm. It's 1940s. So I have, I asked these chiefs, I said, now let's, let me ask you a question. If you have an officer show up in uniform because you've got this poor old man with Alzheimer's who's lost, and your officer is either Asian or has a thick Russian or German accent, what do you think could happen? It's a great point. And I said, next thing you know, they're on top. He's on top of them, trying to hurt them and kill them. Your officer may have to use force and may have to use deadly force. Media is knocking on your door the next day, saying, "Do you train your officers to hurt and kill helpless old men with Alzheimer's?" When we would have that happen, I had a couple officers. I'd call on radio. I said, "Do not go anywhere near them." And I would send one of my officers who had been in the Navy, and he would drive down there, hop out of the car, and say, "Seaman, where are you headed, sir? I'm headed to Norfolk." Well, I need you to get in the car. And they would go to a restaurant and sit there until we could find his son. So these are the things, you know, I, we want to know. When I, I, right now in the county, we've got about 130 people that wear these transmitters. And the older ones, I want to know, were they in the military? Were they in war? I mean, you think about I know a lot of assisted living um, homes now who have a lot of employees of Asian descent. You're dealing with the Korean War. You're dealing with the Vietnam War. And that's why a lot of times you hear about how they're fighting and people come in there and try to take care of them. You don't know where they are in their mind. Right. So they do struggle with that a lot. Um, so it's just getting that information out there to, you know, my, my goal is positive interactions for peaceful outcomes, you know, or peaceful interactions for positive outcomes, either way, uh, just to get out there and help take care of these populations. It's staggering to me that out there in San Diego, there were sheriffs asking you what the connection between law enforcement and and citizens with Alzheimer's. And it's not common to have somebody who thinks they're in the Navy and and going to go overseas for World War II, but it it happens. And and sheriffs typically have large areas to serve. Right. And so that kind of thing will happen. Oh, well, it's not a question of if. Yeah. It's going to be when. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if you can talk about this, and I don't know any any of the real details, but there was a, a younger uh, kid, like five, six years old maybe, up near Doswell that was missing for a while. Did he have autism? He was nine years old. Nine yeah. years That's, old. Uh, it's Robbie Wood. Uh, he was nine years old, non-speaking. He went missing in 2011. Um, I was the first off, uh, sergeant on scene, and when I got there that night, uh, told all three of my officers that had showed up, get to the river, get to the water. Because number one cause of death for autism 14 years and younger uh, when they elope is drowning. Mm. And I know between 2009 and 2011, according to the National Autism Association, uh, 91% of all deaths related to that were drowning. Oh, wow. Last year, I believe it was 72%, which is still very high. Uh, so, yeah, we had, uh, I told my guys to get to the river but just to make sure. Luckily, the water was cold and in, in my interviews with people with autism, asking them why they like water so much, I always get, it feels so good on my skin. I told you it's sensory driven. Right. But not necessarily cold water. Uh, summertimes you'll find them in, in the water all the time. Uh, so, yeah, that went on five and a half days. And uh, we found him alive. Where, where had he been for those five and a half days? I would love to know because he's non-speaking. I would love to have had the opportunity to sit down here and go, what did you do for five and a half days? So he was just walking around, not eating for five and a half days. Who well, knows how much sleep he was getting? probably living off the land. Um, what's interesting is with autism, typically they do not have any fear. They don't understand if I do this, such as walk in that pond, I'll drown. Or if I walk out into traffic, 
I'll get hit by a car. That whole fear aspect is typically not there. So I know a couple nights into the search, we had some searchers come in. So they'd seen coyotes, they'd seen bears, and they had seen all these animals. And they were worried that somebody, something had probably killed him. And the interesting thing is I, I thought about it and I said, look, if he's not in the water and he's out there running around like he belongs, think about it. Why do animals usually attack? What do they sense? Fear. Yeah. And if he's, going, if he's out there wandering around like he belongs there, a lot of times I would expect that they'd probably leave him alone. And I know down in Glencoe, Georgia, they had a boy, a teenager with autism go missing. And you're talking rattlesnakes, nasty terrain. They found him two weeks later, and he had actually gained weight. <laughs> so he was eating off the land. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, but those kind of searches, it was interesting after that search. I got called in the second morning because I was trying to train some officers that were coming in from Maryland, Roanoke, all over the place that were going to help us. They needed to understand autism. Uh, this, you're not necessarily looking for somebody who wants to be found. He's just out there probably playing hide-and-seek. Well, I got called out to the parking lot of Kings Dominion because we were staging there at the time. And I came out there, and there were tents up all over the place, and I saw a line of a 1,000 people. I was like, what in the world's going on? And my major, I mean, made the best decision in the world. He said, Tim, I need you to go in that tent and teach autism. And I walked in a tent, and there were 50 people sitting in chairs, mm. and I gave him about 20 minutes on Robbie and his uh, autism and kind of some characteristics of him. They went and got on buses, then another 50. So for three and a half days, all I did was class after class, and it was over 6,000 people citizens came out to help us but what we didn't need was them to go out there and want to be a hero and see him and next thing you know they take off chasing after him and he falls off a cliff or something happens right so one of his things many times with autism they have fixations things that they like um finding out that his fixation was water bottles and juice boxes because he could sit there and just play with them and I said, he liked the noise and the texture. Yeah, he liked the noise and the texture. And I said, every single one of you all out there have a bottle of water. If you see him and he makes eye contact with you, take that bottle out and start playing with it. He may walk right to you, sit down and take it and just sit there and play. We don't want to make the situation worse. But after that, I started getting a lot of calls from around the country. People are like, well, why is it different looking for somebody with autism than it is somebody else? You think about most people go missing, hunters, and all, they want to be found. Um, but... Like I said, I would love to have had the opportunity to sit down with Robbie Wood and pick his brain, find out what he did, but he's not speaking. Right. So who knows? Did, did you know his particular kind of autism long before he eloped? or Never knew anything. Um, he actually did not live in the county, uh, oh. so he was from somewhere else. And the interesting thing, the first night when I pulled up, I asked the father if uh, he was in that tracking program because I had my equipment with me right there. If, I'd known, if he had had one, all I would need was the frequency that that thing's transmitting on. And I could have probably found him in 30 minutes, yeah. but he did not have one. So what could have been 30 minutes ended up being five and a half days, and we found him alive. It's amazing. Yeah. And how did – so he's not from this part of the world. No, he's from this part of the world, just not the, our county. Got it. Okay, so yeah. over the line. Kind of yeah, thing. but I do know now that he does wear one of those transmitters. Daggone right he does. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, that's one of those things that, you know, well, I, I don't think I'll ever know what he did. I would love to know what he did – where he went and uh I, I when i teach the class you know i talk about all the sensory issues there are you know all of your senses are challenged to, with autism some uh, smell and i always joke to people that maybe his sense of smell 
was heightened like a hundred times because I, even um, hearing, I mean, there's some kids who go in a room and if there's a fluorescent light in that room, you know, they put, it emits a little bit of a buzz mm. if it's real quiet or even the air coming out of the air ducts. Um, that could be overwhelming to somebody with autism. But I thought, you know, I, I tell the officer, I said, have you ever been in a police officer's car who is a canine officer? And like, yeah. I said, what does it smell like? Dog. <laughs> have you ever been in a canine officer who has a bloodhound? Mm. They are nasty. They stink. I said, you know, thinking about it, we'll never know. But it could be possible that Robbie, his sense of smell was heightened so much that he could smell those dogs 100 yards away. And all he did was go away from the smell the whole time. Mm. And that's why we never found him. We ended up finding him when he just got tired. His body, I think his body just said, you know what, I'm done, I'm tired. And he laid down and went to sleep. And eventually somebody walked across his path. Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting. But, yeah, it's... And again, I can't stress how important it is when somebody with a disability goes missing. And, you know, I don't necessarily think just a disability. If a kid goes missing, check your water sources. I don't care if it's a bathtub in somebody's backyard. Get to those water sources and check those because we have found a lot of them knee deep in water going into a pond or in a swamp. And, uh, you know, that's the last thing you want is to find a child drowned. Sure. Yeah. Awful. Uh, have you kept in touch with the family, Robbie's family? I have not. They've come back to uh, the office to visit once a year usually, but nobody, you know, I never know when they're coming. So right. I have not been there at the times that they've come back. And he's 19 now. Yeah, he's 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 an adult. Yeah, he's an adult. And the thing is, he's an adult that pretty much does not look any different than anybody else. Right, right. Let's go back to Matthew and your scenario where Matthew, fast forward, is an adult in your scenario you don't know whether he's got sensitivity to feeling razors or if he can't feel your, your touch at all. Right. How do you uh, train people to deal with that situation? I, I know it's not common. Right. Not everybody's attracted to the gun like that. But right. I, I, you're well, getting- and, you know, my my point I try to get across to every officer is, number one is you going home at the end of the night. Number two, hopefully everybody else is going home safe at the end of the night. Do not jeopardize your officer safety. Do not. Uh, it's always good to know that there's autism involved. Um, and the key is do not touch them unless you absolutely have to touch them. But there are many times when you're not going to know. What I try to do is teach the behaviors. You know, if, you, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you get a call for a suspicious male standing on the side of the road and you pull up, and one, one issue with autism is this thing called echolalia, where they repeat what they hear. Mm. And you can see where an officer will get out of the car and go, hey, what are you doing? And he says, hey, what are you doing? I need your ID. And he says, I need your ID. Sounds like my sister when I was six and she was four. Right. Yeah. You could see how some officers could see that as, oh, he's challenging me. He's challenging my authority. He's being a smart ass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's not always the case. And to be able to pick up, I mean, maybe if he's standing there flapping his hands, stemming, trying to control himself from being overstimulated, that's why they stem. They flap their hands turn in circles, walk on their toes, put their hands over their ears and hum. If you can pick up on one of those behaviors and you've been through some training, that light bulb might go off and you're going, oh, wait a minute. And it may save a life, that light yes. bulb going and, off. And something, I worked with a mother back in 2013, a uh, family in Chesterfield, who the mom actually contacted me and said, you know, I understand you're teaching this law enforcement. I don't understand what, same, kind of like San Diego, I don't understand what autism and police work have to do with each other. And I said, have you got a child on the spectrum? And she said, yes, I've got a son. His name's JP. 
And I said, well, I want, to look, I want you to look at his behaviors now and realize that some of those behaviors are going to be with him for the rest of his life. Now, when he's an adult and he's out in public and you're not there and he gets called in, would you want that officer to understand? She said, oh, my gosh. So she worked with a couple senators and I met with them and we actually got a law passed uh, called JP's Law, mm. where individuals with autism, intellectual disabilities uh, can go to DMV. And what blew my mind was when I did press conferences at the General Assembly, the media was like, you mean people with autism drive? <laughs> they're all around you. Yeah, they're in you're the, surrounded right now. And, yeah. and, but on the back of their ID or their driver's license, they will put ASD slash ID. So if an officer does encounter them and sees that on the back, it'll tip them off. However, I think as we mentioned earlier, autism, this stuff is not mandated for law enforcement in the state of Virginia. So somebody, officer may have had training, may not have had training. Right. And I actually, when I teach, if I have somebody available, depending on where I are, where I am, I'm sorry, I, I like to bring people in with autism. Uh, so the class, I can talk about it all day, but I want them to see their autism. And I got contacted by a mom here in Mechanicsville years ago that said she was told to um, get in touch with me because her son, who was 21, I believe, he was on the spectrum, he has a job, and he got pulled over and got a ticket by a trooper. And I told her, first of all, there's nothing I can do about the ticket. And she said, I, I, I don't want, he probably was speeding. But what had happened, she just wanted to know what, what she could do. And I told her, I said, go to court with him, talk to the trooper, try to talk to the judge and explain the situation. And the judge actually said, mom, if you go to driving school with your son, I'll dismiss it. Mm. And what had happened, uh, he was on Interstate 295 headed to work. He's in the far right lane, getting ready to get off the exit. And there's an unmarked state trooper behind him. And he came up behind him, and so Wayne saw him getting close, so he sped up. And then the trooper got a little closer, so he sped up again. Once he got over 80, the blue lights came on. Well, Wayne, instead of pulling off the right shoulder of the road, he crossed all four lanes and went into the median. Oh, gosh. And stopped there, which already, that's, okay, that's not normal. That's not typically what we see. So the officer comes up, the trooper comes up, and says, I need your driver's license registration. Well, mom had told Wayne, if you ever get stopped, you put your hands on the steering wheel, do not take your hands off the steering wheel, and you're very polite to the officer. So here's Wayne holding onto the steering wheel, and the trooper's telling him, I need your driver's license registration. And he's like, mom told me. And he starts getting nervous. Yeah. So luckily that did not, you could see how that could go south. Sure. Um, but actually the first time I brought him into the academy uh, to speak to uh, the class, mom and, and his brother were there. And they sat there crying. They could not believe we were, you know, I was training officers on this because she's so scared to death what's going to happen to her son. But he's one of them where you ask him a question and he always has a hat and he starts shaking the hat back and forth. And it takes about 10 to 15 seconds for him to answer you because he's processing that question. Um, I know there's a lady out there, people should look her up, Temple Grandin. She goes around the world speaking. Made, made a movie about her. Yes, yeah. amazing movie. Uh, and she says that when people ask her a question, her mind is like a Rolodex or Post-it notes. She has to go through there to find that Post-it note or whatever with the answer to give it to them. So Wayne comes into the class, and, and I'm asking him a couple questions, and he would look at me, and you could tell he was nervous. He was stemming, and uh, he would answer the questions. Then the class said, hey, can we ask him questions? And I said, Wayne, is that okay? Sure. They said, you know, Wayne, what kind of cars do you like? And he'd look at me and sit there just not saying anything. And he's processing it. 
And then he'd answer, I like Camaros, I drive a Mustang. And uh, so we had that great conversation. And believe it or not, I had recruits in the class sitting there crying because they they were just amazed. And I had another girl in the class, Teresa, uh, standing up there. And after they finished asking Wayne questions, one of them said, hey, Teresa, what kind of things do you like to do? And she said, my sister has a boyfriend. I don't like him. I mean, just completely out there. And you'd ask her questions, and she would bring up something else. But the cool thing was their dad was there with me, and he was a retired uh, police officer himself. And he said, I want you all to know something. Teresa will never drive a car. She can't grasp the concept. And, and I told you, people with autism are brilliant. They are brilliant. Yep. He said, but she will never be able to drive a car because she can't figure it out. But she has her pilot's license. <laughs> you know, and it's amazing what, what people with autism are capable of doing. Mm. And, you know, we need to, I've got a friend of mine uh, who's helped me with my side business, a consultant. She's got a son, Austin. He's been on my show. I've got my podcast. But he works at Lowe's in Mechanicsville. They hired him. And he's been there about two or three years. If you asked him now how many days you've worked for Lowe's, he would be able to tell you the exact number of days he's worked. And I will tell you, when he is working and you go to Lowe's, you will not find a cart in the parking lot. Because he's all over, he's all over it. And they love him there. He, he takes pride in his job. And I admire Lowe's for giving him an opportunity. Right. And, I, and people with autism are great employees. They might not have the social skills or they may have social challenges, communication challenges. But again, you, one, if you met one, you've met one. Um, but if you give them tasks to do, they love routine and structure. Mm. And sometimes if you deviate from that, they will have a meltdown. Sure. Um, if Thursday night's pizza night. There better be pizza. Every Thursday night. It better be the same pizza, too, because they'll chew it up and spit it out. Mm. Um, but they are great. If you say, I want you to do this from this time to this, then take a break, then come back and do this. They typically will not be late to work. They will adhere to whatever the rules uh, are and they need that structure that's a lot of these little kids if you go into houses and I, I do it all the time go in and meet the family and you see all the toys lined up in a line or things are stacked up and i love it because if a child goes out of the room i'll move something and, and just, they'll pick up one as soon as they walk in that's the first thing they see and they come over and put it but it comes down you know if they go to school every day in a red pickup truck with dad and all of a sudden the trucks broke down and they have to go to school in a blue car they may have a meltdown. Now think about what the families are dealing with. You're dealing with substitute teachers because that changes the routine. Yep. Fire drills changes yep. routine. So think about your school year. You get that routine and all of a sudden what happens in June? School's out. That's a couple of tough weeks for the families. It's a major transition. And yeah. then what happens two months later? You're back at it. Back at it. So these families are going through so much. And, you know, I, I, I know a lot of them get frustrated and – the only thing I think with autism, and I try to share this with a lot of families because I know they're frustrated, but people with autism, I think, are just being inundated by everything, all the sensory stuff. And I think a lot of times they're picking up on things that we walk, neurotypical people we walk by, we don't pay attention to. And I said, in some way, I wonder if maybe we're the ones with the special need mm. and they get it. Right. You know, because they're so in tune to things. And you can't sit there if the person's non non-speaking, non-verbal. And another thing you won't see a lot of times is a lot of eye contact. And I think that has to do with they're picking up on everything. Right. And law enforcement, we're taught if you ask somebody a question, they don't look you in the eye when they answer you. 
They're probably lying. Yeah, they're being deceptive. And you've got to throw that out of the door. Mm. But they hear you. They know what's going on. And, you know, I show a video when I teach of this girl, Carly Fleischman, up in Canada, who never spoke. She would have her meltdowns, but was non-speaking. She would squeal and scream. And I think it was a 2020 story years ago. And when she was 11 years old, she was sitting with one of her aides or um, a lot of therapy going on. And she came over to the computer and typed um, H-E-L-P. Mm. And they were like, what in the world? And then she came back over and put H-U-R-T. Nobody taught her that. And then she went over behind the couch and threw up. Mm. So they started to realize that she had a formidable means of, edu- uh, of, of communicating. And they would push her. that She couldn't get things unless she typed it. Well, they worked with her and worked with her. She actually went to college online. That's amazing. And she has a blog, and she'll talk about her autism, and, you, and she communicates how she communicates, and you can ask her questions about autism. Why do you do this? Why? And she said, you know, it's just my – I know I shouldn't slap the desk and hit the or beat my head on the floor and stuff like that, but it's like my brain is having a fight with my body to not do it, but I, I have it has to do it to cope. And the one thing about that interview really hit me. The dad said he he started to think about all the times he and his wife talked about her in front of her, thinking she had no no idea what they were she talking about. She was hearing everything. Yeah. And that's heartbreaking because oh, you man. can only imagine what some of those conversations were. They were saying things I'm sure they regret yeah. today. Yeah. But uh, but she I mean, it's autism it, they they're amazing. They're amazing. And and you know, I know my uniform has put me in places where typically I would not have gotten to to speak to people. And I do have a lot of parents come to some of my classes, and when they get there, they usually have an attitude because I don't have kids on the spectrum. But I know when my kids were little and one of them disappeared from the front yard and I'm calling and they didn't answer, I you're, panic. You're freaking out, yeah. They're dealing with that 24-7 because these kids, if they want to go somewhere... They're or, going. And you, you see houses where... Yeah, it's violation of the fire code, but they got key locks on both sides, or they got five or six locks on the doors. They right. got windows that are screwed shut because they want to keep their child safe. The chances of the child eloping and hurting themselves is much greater than a fire and them right. being trapped inside. And yeah. sometimes you got to look past that and just they're doing what they can to take care of their child. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's been a blessing for me, and I love the fact that that uniform has put me in places. I mean, I had the opportunity to speak at the closing ceremony for the Special Olympics a few years ago, right after we got JP's law passed. And, um, you know, kids just coming up hugging, hugging, hugging. And, you know, it, we, we've got to do something to help protect these populations. And a lot of these parents pray that they live one day longer than our child because if I'm not here... Oh, they can't imagine the world with where they're not in it with them. Who's going to take care of them? Yeah. So I love being able to get out there and advocate. But these families, when they come or parents come to the classes, usually when I give them the first break, they come up and they'll tell me, I I came to tear you apart. You know, you don't have kids with autism. And I said, here's the thing. You have a child. You know everything about them. You're living it 24-7. But just because you can interact with your child and it could be a positive encounter doesn't mean you're going to go to somebody else with autism and be successful. I'm trying to give you a snapshot. Hey, we had this situation. This is kind of how we had to deal it, deal with it. And we had this situation. This is kind of so it's a little bit, a little bit of everything. Um, and they're so appreciative that I'm doing it. And me, I'm sure there are people out there going, "Why the heck are you doing it? You don't have a child on the spectrum." And I'm like, "Look, I'm not trying to make a living or take advantage of your situation." 
Um, I don't ever want that to be the case uh, or them to think that. My main thing is get the information out there. There are a few people in the country teaching this stuff, and we stay in contact. And I'm not trying to compete with them. The more people we have out there, the better. Yeah. yeah. And I have them calling me. Hey, I got a call from somebody in Virginia looking for training. And hey, you want to call them? And we all try to work together mainly just to keep these families safe. All right, well, you, you you get your numbers up and you get this assignment many many years ago, but now it's it's touched your your whole being, your, yes. your, your soul, your heart, your mind, everything. I mean, I can tell you you are fully dedicated to it. Yeah, and you got to have a passion for it. And I've had a lot of people come up and go, "Hey, I'd love to, you know, be one of your instructors and I want to teach it." And and sometimes you're hesitant because when people see autism, okay, a 4-hour class on autism and then a 4-hour class on auto, Alzheimer's, they're like Good Lord, I got to sit through that. And I love going into classes. I've been in numerous ones where you go in and you can tell nobody wanted to be there. And I'd be like, hey, y'all looking forward to today? And they're like, well, we had legal update yesterday. It can't be any worse than that. It's like, well, you could be surprised. And when I get done, they come up and say, this, this is some of the best stuff I've ever had. Yeah. Um, and it's just me trying to relay the information. My goal is not to be standing in front of a group of people. Before, before I started running this program, I was scared to death to talk in front of a group. I was scared. Really? And the first time we started running the program for the agency and I got asked to go speak to a group and they said, would you come talk to us about it? And I was like, sure, no problem. And I was like, what did I get myself into? And I was working that night and I had to go speak to this group and I was so scared. I had to bring an extra t-shirt with me to work. I went in, went to the bathroom, changed because I was sweating like a champ. Went out there and uh, they called me up to come talk. And I stood up there and talked, and I finished. And the lady goes, you know how long you were up there? And I was like, no, ma'am. She said, you were up there for 45 minutes. I was like, I am so sorry. I am sorry. She goes, they love it. And I said, but nobody wants to listen to me for 45 minutes. And she goes, but you didn't even look at your notes. And I was like, oh. So I had to go back up to the podium to get my notes that I forgot to look at. (laughs) And I was like, this is weird. And then I kept getting thrown into these situations. And... uh, I don't have a problem with it now. It's 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 interesting because if I somebody says, "Hey, can you come speak for an hour?" and I'll go in and they're like, well, "Where's your PowerPoint? What are you going to use?" And I'm like, "I don't have anything." Yeah. And they're like, "Well, how are you going to do this?" I was like, "Go wing it." The, the way the, the way pe- people did it before PowerPoint was invented. Yeah. That's what I'm so, but you know, if I'm teaching a class, I'll have I'll have stuff up there. But uh, you know, and I had the opportunity to work for the the uh, training response network. I got contacted last spring about developing online training for law enforcement, uh, public safety officers. And I've been able to shoot a three-hour online class uh, to do that. And the company is actually sending me around trying to get chiefs chiefs and sheriffs to buy into it, you know, face-to-face classes. And uh, if they can buy into it, then they don't have to pull officers off the road and put them in a class. They can actually do the training on a computer. They can purchase the online training. Right. And uh, hopefully within the next month or so, I'll go in and do the Alzheimer's course as well. But They've got to buy into it up top. Right. I can train all the officers, but if the ones up top, the chiefs and the sheriffs and the admin, if they buy into it, then they're going to see the need. And I feel like I can sell it to them, not sell it in a monetary uh, way, but sell it to them, them to realize, oh my gosh, we need our people trained because the last thing they want to do is get sued because they didn't handle a situation properly. Right, and and they want good outcomes as much as anybody else does. Right, right. but you've got these topics. You've got a, you know, I would love to have a quadre of trainers, and I got some people that help me a lot, and that I would love to have the opportunity to say, hey, look, 
I've got to be here training these people, but they want training. Are you available to go? But you do have to be careful who you can't, you know, you can't do as, as happens sometimes. Oh, you're an instructor. Here's the lesson plan. Go teach this class. Yeah. It has to be somebody who's got a passion for it. A real expert. Yeah. And, and wants to be an expert and wants the world to know exactly what they know. Yeah. And, and my thing is people call me a subject matter expert, um, but I still got a lot to learn. And I love to go to classes and leave having learned stuff from the students. Uh, and I always go in and tell them, you know, I've done some train the trainers and have them teach some of the stuff. And I'm like, if you come up with something good, I'm stealing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just so you know. And we've done that. I mean, we've had we've trained people to teach some of these classes. The one at GBI, we got asked after we did an eight-hour Alzheimer's to come back two months later to do a train the trainer. And we have them teach back the curriculum to us. And some of the we told them, if you get got something good, we're taking it. Yeah. We're using it too. And, you know, but it's, it's sharing that information. Nobody's pride gets in the way. It's just getting the message out there. Very cool. Uh, you mentioned podcast. What's your podcast all about? Podcast is a new perspective. You can go to YouTube, type Tim Sutton, a new perspective, and a lot of them are uh, on YouTube. I've been working with the uh, Chapters Network up in New York and um, got on there last October a year ago with a girl, uh, Rachel Barcelona and Tyler Gianchetta, who is in, he's in New York. She's in Florida and she's actually missed Tampa, but she's got autism and Tyler's got autism. He's on the spectrum, but they had asked me to come on the show. And then I came back last February and shared a lot of this with them. And the producer, uh, Steve Vaccaro actually contacted me the next day. He said, look, you want, you need your own show. You need to be heard. So I've been doing them on t Tuesday nights when I'm off. Um, I work evening shifts, so my schedule's always different. So it's not a weekly thing. I do it when I can. Uh, luckily they're recorded and you can go back and see them but it's mainly I when I was asked I, I was asked by the producer Steve he said how do you picture it figure out how you picture this show and I said I don't want it's not about me I don't want to get on there and just start talking I want to bring people on with autism people who are affected by autism people who have dealt with the Alzheimer's journey caregivers um, there's a gentleman in Chesterfield again uh, Robert Schaefer he and I have taught around the state uh, Alzheimer's I brought him on to talk about his journey with his wife she got diagnosed with Alzheimer's in her late 40s that's incredible and he had to retire sell everything and they were in Virginia Beach at the time their plan for retirement was they were going to take a boat up and down the international coastal you know, waterway living their best lives yeah. yeah and then she developed Alzheimer's and they moved here to be closer to the family and he was her caregiver for about 20 21 years mm. and uh, he's got a book out there called the, uh, I think it's Identity Thief of the 21st Century, and it's his journey. But, uh, you know, he's, he, he's been a mentor to me to teach me some things uh, about Alzheimer's and understanding how to live it, how, you know, dealing with that person losing their memories, forgetting who you are and, and things. Because it's hurtful, but it's not that person acting that way or not remembering this. It's that disease and there is no point in trying to argue with somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia. Right. Because what's true in their mind is the truth. You're not going to change that. Um, so sometimes, I mean, I've, I went into one house. Uh, the son called me and said he was worried about his mom wandering off and wanted to try to put a transmitter on her. He said, I don't think she's going to go for it. And it was pretty funny because I go in and start talking. As soon as I walked in, she goes, I love you, Bowling Green police officers. Y'all are the most wonderful people. Am I going to tell her different? Nope. You know, and people go, well, you shouldn't lie to people. Well, you know, it if, doesn't matter. If no. I'm going to her reality, 
She appreciates it. Am I really lying to her? That's her reality. That's a great point. Yeah. And one thing about that is, um, and I'll get back to this story in a second, but I had a girl call me I went to high school with, and she'd asked me about her mom. And I went over and met him. Mom seemed okay. But um, put her in the program, and about eight months later, Amy called me and said, hey, my mom keeps calling me sissy. And I said, Amy, your mom thinks you're her sister. Eight months went by, and she said, Tim, my mom keeps calling me mom. And one thing she had had an issue with in the beginning was her mom would say, when's your dad coming home? Well, mom, remember dad died last year. Then she'd say, well, when's your dad coming home? Mom, remember dad died last year. I said, Amy, every time you tell her that, it's the first time. Yeah. Do you really want to do that? Maybe say, well, hey, let's look at some pictures, you know, and and go through and kind of divert that attention. Right. And people, oh, don't lie to them. Look, that's her reality. So me going along with her reality, I don't see that as lying to them because you're going to where they are. But this one lady, you know, I'm a Bowling Green police officer, so I sit there and I'm talking to her and I asked her if she'd wear this transmitter. I said, look, you've got pretty jewelry on. Um, Would you wear it on your ankle? And she just smiled at me and she nods. And I said, look, I'm going to go, I'm going to put it on your ankle. Don't want you to think I'm getting fresh. So she started flirting and I put it on her ankle. And uh, I'm just sitting there flirting back and forth with her. And then I said, I need to get a picture. Can I take your picture? No. I said, why not? She goes, I've got to get my hair done. Mm. I said, okay, you go get your hair did. I'm going to get my hair did. And I'm coming back Thursday. So I showed up Thursday and the son met me in the driveway. He goes, I have no idea how in the world you did this. And she still got it on. And I said, well, good. So I get ready to walk in the back door and she runs through the house. And I looked at him like, what in the world? She forgot to put her lipstick on. Mm. So she comes out, and I said, this is what I want you to do. I said, I want you to take a picture of me and her together. So he did. And uh, I went, made a five-by-seven, and and got a picture frame and put it in there. I said, where does she spend most of her time? Over in that chair. I said, I want you to put this on the table right beside her chair. If she ever asks why she has this thing on her ankle, you tell her her boyfriend wants her to keep it on. She never took it off. That's amazing. Uh, So you kind of have to, you know, even the families. You know, I've gone to a couple of black um, black families' homes, and Grandma, she thinks it's the '60s. Now, what was the relationship between law enforcement and African American community? Not great. Then? So I have to tread lightly. You know, I have to realize she might not be very receptive to me coming in. I have to go to that reality and govern myself accordingly. Yeah. So it, it's very interesting and. You know, so many people are suffering and dealing with this stuff. We actually had a gentleman last week, uh, one of my deputies stopped and uh, ran his information, found out he was missing from Kentucky. Mm. And he was trying to get to Vermont. And the family's like, "Uh, we're on the way. It'll be nine hours. Wow. So somebody's got to sit there and, you know, we had nobody, nothing else. You can't just send him on his way. Right. But he was determined to go to, you know, go up north. And it's like, yeah, he's not. And I don't know if at some point in his life he lived up there and thought that's where he was supposed to be. But, you know, people deal a lot with that, uh, the autism, not the autism, but the Alzheimer's dementia. They get very irritated and aggrav- you know, agitated. And, and, and especially in the evenings when it starts get, go, getting dark, they start at sundowning and sometimes they get very aggressive, angry. And the only thing I can equate that to is, you know, in the evening, that's when you start to settle down right. and you just relax. Well, a lot of times they're in an unfamiliar place and they're, okay, I'm supposed to be at home. There's nothing here looks familiar. And they will, I I think that's what gets them wound up because they're used to 
being able to relax. And I tell people in my classes, I said, look, if you left home this morning and you got halfway here and you're thinking, well, did I turn the stove off? I remember using it, but I don't remember, you know, and that's going to start eating at you. But if you decide to just come on to class all day long, you're going to be a little bit on edge waiting for that phone call from the fire department say, Hey, we're where your house used to be. I said, that nagging feeling is with somebody who has dementia 24 seven. I said, the difference is you can go back and check the stove. There's nothing they can do to get rid of that nagging feeling. There's no relief. No. And that's, you know, it's tough. It is so tough. Um, having to deal with it. And you know, when they're asking the same question over and over and over, you just go along with it and just answer it again. Yeah. Uh, what would you like to see happen over the next 5, 10, 20 years uh, as it relates to what we've been talking about? I'd like to see me retire. <laughs> um, I, I would like to see mandated training um, nationwide on Alzheimer's dementia. I would like to see you know training out there. So it may be mandated. Where's the training? Okay, there needs to be a curriculum for both of these. And I think every law enforcement i think like i said the whole criminal justice system needs to understand again there are times when people with alzheimer's people with autism should be arrested but uh there are it's case by case uh sometimes that's not necessarily the best course of action And, and having these unfortunate situations the thing with autism is if somebody with autism has a negative encounter with law enforcement officer that sticks with them Mm. and then every time they see that uniform or that police car they equate it to that negative, painful experience. Um, so getting out there and, and having agencies do meet and greets or doing things for special populations. Uh, I know a friend I talked with for years, Travis Aiken with Roanoke PD, they used to have a big thing. And it was just a huge festival for people with autism and other disabilities. And they would actually bring them in, give them a tour of the police department, and they would take a picture of the child with the police officer give them a five by seven so they could put it in their room and say, yeah, this person is my friend. Right. Um, But having those positive encounters, um, they stay with them. They stay with them. Like I told you, Austin can tell you exact number of days he's worked at Lowe's. Their brains, man, they can pick up on things. He can also tell you anything and everything you want to know about the Baltimore Orioles. Mm. More than you really want to know. (laughs) And, you know, he's, he's got fixations. It doesn't have to be an item. His is Baltimore Orioles. Politics. Um, I'm forever getting called. He called me four years ago. Hey, I've been invited to a luncheon with uh, Ed Gillespie up in Northern Virginia. I want I want you to go with me because I want to tell him about what you're doing. So he'd been communicating back and forth when Gillespie was running for governor. Holy cow! So here I'm in a car headed up in Northern Virginia, and it was funny because I mean he we get there Gillespie's not there but he's going that's so and so that's so and so's daughter and that's so and so. He knew all the players mm. and who they were. And I could see him starting to get nervous. His legs started shaking. And I said, Austin, when Mr. Gillespie walks in, you do not get up and run over to him because you will get tackled. You just sit here. And I tell you, on, on I was blown away because Mr. Gillespie came in that room and he walked straight over to Austin and said, Austin, my friend, I'm glad you're here. And Austin said, Mr. Gillespie, I want you to meet my friend. This is Tim Sutton. He teaches autism and all. But he could tell you anything and anything you want to know about politics. Mm. Um, but we did, I ended up getting invited. He got invited by Buck Showalter to come up to Camden Yards. Oh, that's awesome. For, um, autism day. And I get a call. We want you to go. So I went up there and I actually took my son and 
Austin, another kid, uh, two other kids, and my son out on the field with Chris Davis and all of them taking batting practice. Me and Austin's mom standing behind the fence. We're not allowed on the field. <laughs> but we had uh, Jim Palmer and a couple other uh, old Orioles came down and started the, talking. Jim Palmer's a great. Start talking to Austin. Austin's going, Mr. Palmer, who's the only second baseman for the Orioles to do this, that, or whatever? I don't know. Chip didn't know. You don't know? <laughs> and he's, he was getting frustrated. So he threw another question out. And they're like, well, we don't know. They're like, Austin, we need you up in the press box with us. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he couldn't believe them having been Orioles, did not know the answers to these questions. Um, but it's been really neat. And, and the cool thing about Austin, I love talking about Austin. He's been on my show. But about four years ago, um, he would not talk to people because he did not want them to know he had autism and he was very embarrassed and he and i actually did a story with channel six and greg mcquade uh where it was the first time he really spoke on camera and he has come to embrace his autism and he will share it with anybody uh he realizes he's special uh he spent most of his years in high school getting bullied yeah because who gets bullied the ones that are different right um and but now he's embraced it and he'll tell people about it and i know my mom and dad went to i didn't know they were going to lose but all of a sudden my phone started blowing up austin was calling me i'm like i don't have time to talk found out my dad had gone to lowe's to get light bulbs with mom and he was working and he met them for the first time he helped him get to the car and this and that and he was and so i called him he told me all about it i said yeah my mom told me hang up 10 minutes later hey did she tell you that uh that that um, he, she told your dad I was on his on your podcast. Yeah, Austin, I'm aware of that. But he he's such an amazing kid, and he's embracing his autism, and he's proud of it. It's a great transition for him to make because he's got to feel better about yeah, that. Yeah, very much. All so, right, I'm going to take a weird turn here. All right, tell me about your kids. My kids. I've got a son who's a senior at Virginia Tech, and I've got twin girls that are Bridgewater College out in the Shenandoah Valley. They are great, great kids. Silent Rob needs their names. It's uh, Caleb, Caleb Sutton. He's uh, the senior at Tech, and then Emily and Nicole. All right, right on. They are uh, some awesome kids. Girls just got home last week from school, and he'll be home this weekend, actually. Yeah, uh, when they're away, you, you you miss them terribly, and when, when they're imminent, coming to the house, you can't wait. It's like Christmas for parents, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really neat. I it just they're special kids. Yeah, that's so, awesome. So yeah, they. They're smart. They're smart kids. And, you know, it's funny because Caleb, he actually works at Green Top. He's, he's big into hunting, fishing. I'm not sure where that came from. Um, I, it was not me. I, 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 when he was little, I've sat in the woods many times with him. But um, he's all into the outdoors, hunting, fishing, doing, doing all that stuff. And Nicole is as well. She, uh, she's, she'll go out there and hunt with the best of them. And Emily, she's just smart. She she wants to be a vet or something to do with animals. She loves animals, so they're they're awesome. She'd love my house because I got two cats and two dogs, and I didn't ask for any of them. There you go. Yeah, it's all good. All right, <laughs> even bigger turn here, and we're we're gonna end with this. You are a talk show host. Yes. It's it's your first night, maybe your only night. You want to have a, an awesome show, but it could be an awesome show from your perspective, from the world's perspective. You get to invite three guests. Ooh. This is meant to be revealing about you, Tim. You get to invite a male guest, a female guest, and a musical group or a solo musician. They can be alive or dead. You can know them. You don't have to know them. They could be famous, not famous. Who are your three guests on your All right, show? the musician 
It'd probably be David Gilmore. Pink okay. Floyd. Pink right. Floyd. Nice. I love some Pink Floyd. It's not. I've seen them twice, and it's not just a concert. It's an experience. It's different. So um, nothing like it, just right? Just got to be careful who you stand by because you'll get the contact high. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, I remember that in Raleigh. Um, may, I, would love, I would love to have a sit down with Jesus. Hmm. You know, just so much. I, I think there'd be tons of questions to ask there. Um, I don't think you'd ever run out of questions. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. You wouldn't. And you might not have some of them answered because I, I don't know. But I, I think it would open the door for some amazing, you know, a lot of whys, a lot of whys, or how did you, how did you do this? How, you know, because the stuff he went through. And uh, female, I tell you, the one I want to talk to now, um, and I actually have somebody working on us, but it's is Holly Robinson Pete because she mm. has a son with autism, and I've been trying to make contact with somebody on a celebrity or an athlete that would buy into what I'm doing because I think it could get this information out there better. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's one I'm dying to talk to, um, because I know she's been infected and had some concerns over her kids and law enforcement encounters. And main thing is just to get somebody out there so we can get this information to help keep them safe. Yeah, that's a that's a great guest. Uh, I, Rob and I are not super connected, but if we can help you c- connect with her, we'll we'll do whatever we can. Yeah, I just you know I, I think if, if people can give me a couple minutes just to listen to what I have to say about it, I think I can. I think they'll buy into it, especially if they have a fam family member affected by Alzheimer's or autism or something some type of disability. And you're bringing the expertise of understanding autism and uh, and being law enforcement, and so yeah, you'd be perfect to talk to them. And, and most. Police officers. I mean, it's it's a different it's a different uh, audience. Police officers. Um, we're hard to teach because a lot of times, um, if you come into a law enforcement environment and try to teach officers, and you have not been a police officer or or not currently a police officer, many times they'll shut down because you don't see what I see on a daily basis. You haven't dealt with what I de- deal with. And I've taught with a lot of parents of kids with autism, and I've told them, look, you've got to have somebody up there with you who's been in law enforcement because that adds credibility to you. I'm actually working now. um, We're supposed to connect after the first year with Valerie Abbott. She's here in Richmond. But we met a couple times, and she actually has a daughter with a hearing disability, another invisible disability. And we have talked about developing curriculum for invisible disabilities uh she's got a book out and she didn't know till her daughter was two years old that she had a hearing problem because she was pronouncing words wrong um you know the book she wrote is called patapillar it's supposed to be caterpillar but she kept saying patapillar and uh then they noticed whenever the phone would ring or the doorbell would ring she didn't respond Uh, but she's 16 now she drives and she's scared if she gets pulled over and i said here's the thing a normal traffic stop, the officer would come up and you could probably let him know. I said, but if her vehicle happens to be in the area of a robbery that just occurred and it matches the description of the suspect, that traffic stop's going to be a little bit different because you're going to have four or five police cars behind her with guns pointed at her, yelling commands that she can't hear. Right. So we're, we're hoping to uh, develop some type of training for these invisible disabilities. That's fantastic. All right, last thing. Yes. Uh, what 
what would you leave us with if you wanted the world to be a better place for these folks with uh, special needs? Just care about them and acknowledge them. Uh, I know the autism community, those families a lot of times are the ones in the neighborhood that everybody's sitting there looking at that house and watching the children lay on the ground, beat their head. And they're under a microscope. They're being scrutinized. Um, And you hear so many of them saying, you know, I was in a store with my son and he had a meltdown and everybody kept telling me, oh, you need to spank that child. You need to spank that child. Last thing you need to do. Sometimes they're not able to control how they're dealing with stuff. Yes, there are behaviors that can be modified, and and you can't say, oh, they've got autism, that's just what they do. You can try to modify some of them, but some of those problems are going to happen, and just be more understanding of what what they're going through if they say it's autism or or whatever. Um, But, yeah, and and things can get bad with the autism and the Alzheimer's in that house, and many times the last thing they want, because everybody's looking at them, and that's that strange family that lives there, the last thing they want is, police car one two or three sitting in front of that house right um but we need to you know everybody just needs to give them a little understanding and i think a better understanding of what those families are dealing with what those caregivers are dealing with uh would go a long way and just helping you know love everybody care about everybody and be empathetic to your fellow man empathy empathy is huge yeah Awesome. Tim, thank you so much for joining us, man. Uh, I learned a ton tonight. Good. Uh, my, my wife, I was mentioning before recording, is an instructional assistant for right. uh, children with autism. And uh, it's fantastic work that my wife does with what you're doing. Um, there's there more we can do, certainly. And uh, we'll do our part to help you out down the road, man. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.